It was 1.40 a.m. Deputy Sheriff Val Johnson was on patrol in rural Marshall County when suddenly he saw a bright light a few feet above ground level two miles down the road. I traveled about a mile and the light seemed to uh, intercept me, so to speak. Came, uh, came right upon me. It was painful. The, the light was extremely brilliant and painful. I closed my eyes and I heard the sound of breaking glass and that's the last I remember. Whatever it was came extremely fast. He didn't have time to be scared. He doesn't know what it was. I have no idea. It's truly unexplainable to me or uh, un unknown to me. Johnson was unconscious for 40 minutes before he radioed for help and was taken to the hospital. A doctor and later an eye specialist confirmed that Johnson had suffered mild welder or flash burns to his eyes. Even stranger, both Johnson's wristwatch and the electric clock in his patrol car had mysteriously stopped for 14 minutes. An investigator from the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, flew in to examine the damaged patrol car. There was no evidence of radioactivity, and neither the investigator nor the sheriff can figure how the two spring-mounted antennas became bent at almost 90-degree angles. At the scene of the accident, skid marks show Deputy Johnson coasted for 800 feet after impact before applying the brakes. The area around here has been searched, but nothing's been found. All kinds of small airplane theories have been bandied around, but Deputy Johnson clearly remembers hearing no engine noise. And nothing explains the 14-minute lapse in the two timepieces, nor the peculiar bending of the antennas. It's a mystery. Or, as the UFO investigator from Illinois said, it appears to have been a close encounter of the second kind. Jillian Rice, Channel 5 Eyewitness News in Marshall County. can hear the music i knew this last time i reacted to the music and but i couldn't hear it on the pod oh you can hear mine when you first said hello yeah <laughs> cool that's cool <laughs> hey what are you listening to tonight motorhead ace of spades <laughs> oh god they have a great song one of their later songs um it's called God Was Never On Your Side. Mm -hmm. Check that song out. It's really mm -hmm. good. <laughs> anyway, so, uh -huh. we doing 1978 and 79? 78 and 79, yep. All right. <laughs> I got a ton of shit. Me too. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I'll do a couple firsts. Um, okay. There's this wonderful journal from the 70s called Marson. Well, first it was called Believe It. And then it was called the Marson, M-A-R-C-E-N journal. And it was out of Maryland, where I, I was born and raised. Um, somebody at the University of Maryland, I think, 
it, it's this journal and it's, it reminds you of Rosales because this journal came out and um, it actually had the artwork on it, that artwork that you love. You know what I mean? Oh, one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was on the cover of that. And um, it's just account after account after account in every issue. It, it's like treasure. Oh, so great. Here's some possible Bigfoot accounts. <laughs> Our Bigfoot, that's what category they're in. From 1978. Let's see, I'll do a couple here. Um, ooh, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, Iowa, November 15th, 1978. A reign of terror perpetrated by a gigantic, smelly Bigfoot continued as the creature ripped the cat apart and left behind tracks. Four hands wide and five hands long. Witnesses say the creature is at least seven feet tall and smells like the middle of a garbage dump. Hundreds of people have been calling the police daily since July. That. And here, wait, I love this one. Wait, where's the one I love? Oh. Landing, Michigan. Morse Easterling, 53, was cleaning out his garage to make room for a second car, he told police. When as he was backing a car outside the driveway, he saw a big, hairy, ape-like beast in his rearview mirror that, at, <laughs> that he thought at first was a large woman wearing a fur coat. <laughs> <laughs> Easterling asked it if he could be of any assistance, and the creature ran off rapidly <laughs> into the <laughs> apple orchard. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there, there's two things there that are interesting. One, there's so many accounts of an apple orchard. Yes. And two, that's not the first time I've heard that. It's a lot of people say they thought it was somebody in a costume or a fur coat. Right. Or a ghillie suit, you know. Right. Yeah. Here's one more like that, Tim. Mrs. Di oh, this is a uh, Millington, Michigan, December of seventy-eight. Mrs. Diane Maharg was washing luncheon dishes at about two p.m. when a large dark object near the timberline, three hundred yards away, caught her attention as she looked out the kitchen window. When she first saw the object, she thought it was on all four legs and might be a swamp deer. As she watched further, it stood on two legs, and she thought it was a man in a snowmobile suit until she realized it was many times larger than a man. As she watched the creature for 15 minutes, Mrs. Maharg noticed that it had long and heavy arms and no discernible neck. Wow. Which I guess that makes sense, because when, when you see something, your brain's going to be like, Is that the, that's a big guy, or, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Or yeah. a woman in a fur coat. The process. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, I thought this was really good. I'm trying not to use all Albert Rosales. I know. But, but so I, I pulled some stuff from old newspapers and stuff. But Aww. this is, 
Albert Rosales, and this was the um, introduction to Humanoid Encounters 1975 to 1979, and this just gives us a little background according to a, a good researcher on these years. Okay. 1978 was the year the bottom dropped out. Mm-hmm. As far as range and variety of incidents, 1978 led the 70s decade. All types of humanoids were reported worldwide and in all types of situations. Besides your standard abductions, there were numerous types of entities reported. Humanoid waves were reported from Italy, France, England, Malaysia, Spain, etc. The first reports coming from behind the Iron Curtain were beginning to emerge. Repeated abductions were reported from Brazil. Bizarre incidents and abductions surfaced from Australia and and New Zealand. Reports from previously slow areas became commonplace. High, Mm. High strangeness was at its height. An era of change was looming. The 80s were just around the corner. In the U.S., the reports were steady and consistently of a high strangest, strangest nature. The ominous manimal Bigfoot para-ape connection became more evident. A well-documented possible retrieval of a dead humanoid was reported in New Jersey early on in the year, but it was only the beginning. It was an unprecedented year. It took 11 years to almost equal the quality and amount of reports recorded for 1978. Mm-hmm. 1979, the end of the high strangeness decade, went out with a bang. A decline was noted from the almost record-breaking year of 1978, but humanoid reports were still widespread and many quite bizarre in nature. Starting the year with the witnessed abduction of Filiberto Card- Cardenas in Miami and the mind-boggling affair at Rally Regis in England, humanoid encounters continued on at a steady pace, with concentrations in England, Puerto Rico, and Spain. Brazil still seemed to be the focus of several assorted types of visitors. The winds of change were approaching. The 80s decade was upon us. Suddenly, abductions were being reported with a higher frequency, and simple close encounters of the third kind suddenly became bizarre abduction affairs. There was no turning back now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, here's one from Hickory, 1968. Oh. Right. Um, this is August 15th, 1978. At around 11 p.m. Large triangle shaped craft traveling west on Highway 70 at almost midnight. The craft was first seen over an incline near a patch of woods on what is now Highway 70 in Hickory. Going west. Which is a road I know very well. Mm -hmm. I'm always on it. It was low (laughs) to the ground when it came out from behind the wood patch. It went over and across the highway with two big round white lights shining. I remarked to my husband, this is the weirdest airplane lights I have ever seen. The craft was headed west as we were going east, and it was on the left side above and parallel to the highway. The distance between us and the craft was close to 600 yards at first encounter, as well as approximately 400 to 1,000 feet off the ground. Its altitude was not easily determined because of its size and the darkness. 
Then the third light on the craft came on in the rear side, and that is when the triangle shape was revealed. There was no sound coming from the craft, and the shape of this massive triangle craft blocked out a lot of the stars above the highway. The size must have been around the size of a large airliner. And this, hmm. this was from National UFO Reporting Center. This is a note. Nice. This is a note from them. The source of this report is well known to us. And she was married to a now deceased, very skillful, very skilled and dedicated UFO investigator in the Carolinas. We consider her to be exceptionally reliable. And I wonder who that is. The, the right. two researchers that I've come across a lot, especially that time period, um, one was the guy who wrote the book about UFOs in North Carolina. Uh, oh, I feel so bad. I can't remember. It's uh, <laughs> George. Here, I'm going to pull the book out. It's uh, George Fawcett, who was from this area. Uh-huh. So that could have been George Fawcett's wife or Wayne Laporte, who was another guy who seemed to... Uh, investigate a lot here hmm so yeah we, could, we need to find out yeah well can i, I can I, I go ahead go ahead no i just want to keep you at home i have something from your area too oh good <laughs> but <laughs> i but do you i mean i don't want to cut you off though um toluca north carolina do you know where that is toluca no. north carolina uh, twelve twenty one seventy eight. After quite a number of sightings of a large ape-like creature near Carpenter's Knob in Cleveland oh, County. Oh, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Area residents have dubbed the creature Knobby. <laughs> More than a dozen eyewitnesses described an animal covered with black fur with a flat face like an ape and standing upright over six feet tall. R.M. Newton said he passed the creature and then came back and watched it calmly munching vegetation. Many residents of the area are reporting a peculiar sound at night coming from Carpenter's Knob. They describe the cry as starting out as a low growl or bellow of a bull and then getting higher pitched until it is a shrill scream that merges into a yodeling sound. Knobby. And there's like a whole page of Knobby accounts. Yeah, I I love it. I pulled a couple too, <laughs> <laughs> but they were kind of boring. They were just uh, newspaper like, articles. But yeah, that yep. was the the year of Nobby. It was. <laughs> you got to go hang out there, Carpenter's Knob. I know, I know. Well, it's it's always that whole. I do know where that's at. It, I, the the name of the town threw me off, but I know where Cleveland County is, but yeah, that whole area, there's always been uh, sightings around there. And I think that uh, I should have pulled the first account. Um, it was an elderly woman and her dogs were barking, I think. And she walked out there and, and she just matter of factly called the cops and we're like, yeah, there's a monster out here. Right. Hey, there's <laughs> a monster outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great i love it um well here's uh 
here's a newspaper article from Ohio. This was uh, July 11th, 1978. Um, Mm -hmm. Mansfield, Ohio from the News Journal. And the headline is Monster Scene by Ralph Kiziel. Someone or something has been spotted lurking in the wooded area around the tiny village of Butler in southeastern Richland County. Word of the sighting of a creature is swiftly spreading through the Worthington Township community. Several residents reported seeing the strange figure on two separate occasions stalking in a densely wooded area off Ohio 95, just south of the village limits. Richland County Sheriff's Deputy Rick Imhoff said the area was searched thoroughly Saturday and Sunday nights and again yesterday morning, but no evidence of the object was found. He added no special patrol of the area will be made unless requested by the Butler Police Department. Residents described the creature as standing nearly seven to nine feet tall with red bulging eyes and a head Mm. as wide as a tractor tire. Mm. The figure was spotted about 600 feet 600 feet behind the Roger E. Klein residence on 95 by two youths at 11.30 Saturday night. Eugene Klein, 17, and Ken O'Neill, 15, told deputies they were walking behind the residence near the railroad tracks, which run through the village when the pair heard something rustling in a thick growth of vines about 50 feet from where they were standing. The boys pointed a flashlight beam in the direction of the noise and saw what they described as a large dark mass with a head much bigger than his body. Sunday night, deputies were called back to Butler to help village and Belleville police investigate shots that were heard by several residents fired in the woods by the railroad tracks. Butler policeman Fred Horn said he found large prints in the wet, tall grass that indicated something heavy and large had stopped in the weeds near the tracks. He added it would have it would have have to be larger than a cow or a deer. Mm. It is probably just someone playing a game, he said, adding that with the gunshots heard Sunday night. It is no longer funny. (laughs) (laughs) The creature was first sighted by three boys two weeks earlier in the same spot. Mm. <laughs> well, I can take you to New York City, 1978, okay. and it's a Rosales. <laughs> I have that book too. <laughs> oh, great. An unnamed woman from New York City claims to have been a participant in a bizarre mass abduction event that she didn't recall until 10 years after the fact. According to the woman, she woke up one night to find herself in a large silver-walled room with about 30 other women. They were all being undressed by extraterrestrials who looked like a cross between humans and cats. They had brown skin and green skirted uniforms. Says the witness, they took us all together (laughs) into a medical bay of some kind. They placed their hands. All right, ready? They placed our hands and feet in loops attached to ropes that came down from the ceiling. They didn't put us on tables. We just hung in the air. They stuck something up our noses that sort of looked like a plastic ball. The extraterrestrials then told the women that they were studying human female reproduction 
systems because their own females died soon after menopause. Researcher Jack Grimes, who interviewed the women, writes, it is one of the most interesting abduction stories I have ever heard. And that's from Preston Dennett, oh, UFOs God. over in New York. Got people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Okay, here's one, um, December 3rd, 1979, from Rosales, and this was Angeles Forest, California. Two men out in a hilly and wooded area looking for Bigfoot-type creatures suddenly heard machine-like sounds coming from possibly an underground source. Later, they both saw a silvery disc-shaped object land 130 feet away from them. Two men wearing khaki jumpsuits with dark hair approached them. The uniform on the man had a patch on one side of the chest resembling a round black planet with a bolt of yellow-orange lightning across it. Mm. The men questioned the witnesses on their intentions for several minutes while the witness, witnesses remained paralyzed. Their minds seemed to go into a blank, and when they regained control, the men in the disc were gone. Mm. Sounds like they had a cool patch. Right? <laughs> Let's see. Sorry, I'm stuck on Nobby accounts. It's like pages of Nobby. <laughs> yeah, there were. That was a big deal. And it was the thing um, that happened too, where people were cashing in on it. The local stores were starting to sell Nobby stuff and. There was a um, there was a local musician who wrote the who did a song called the Nobby song, and they would play it on local radio, and it was about Nobby. And I, I was like, oh God, I gotta find the forty five for it. <laughs> right. But he never did one, which I can't believe. It was just right. it was just a radio song, but there was no um, uh, no forty five pressed, unfortunately. And, um, but yeah, it's, it seems the, um, it pops up here and there. It's still talked about. Wow. I, oh, here's another one. Um, Palaka, Arizona, January, 1979. A large hairy humanoid creature with incredibly big feet was sighted on a Hopi Indian reservation. The first encounter was near the Reservation Assembly of God Church, causing every dog in the village to bark and disrupting church services. Hopi tribal police were called in and found smears of fresh blood on the church bus and extremely large but otherwise human-appearing footprints. The tracks were followed to the precipitous wall of the nearby Mesa where they disappeared. Later that night, the entire village was awakened by all the dogs barking. And one finally looked out to see a large hairy creature standing near a tree in the moonlight. They said it seemed to have no neck and had a head of a big, a head as big as a pumpkin, a large pumpkin. How about that? Wow. And that one, because, um, there's more accounts here, just like Nobby. 
Um, it says Hopi res res Reservation Tribal Police were again called out to chase away Harry Harry. <laughs> <laughs> As some people are beginning to call the hawking hair covered creature that sets all the village dogs barking and leaves huge footprints. Wow. <laughs> Harry Harry and Nobby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there, I found a, um, another North Carolina newspaper article, and I won't bore you with that. It's pretty long, and it's not that no. but This was um, out of Monroe, North Carolina, March 13th, 1979, and it's um, that guy I sent, the UFO investigator, Wayne uh, Laporte. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about all the sightings. So, um, yeah, I've tried to find more on it. I need to keep digging. Mm -hmm. In the past, I have found more. Uh, I found a couple more um, Hickory sightings in 1978. And when I was on Facebook, I um, talked to people who had seen them. I had found an old Hickory article and talked to a few people who were like, oh, yeah, you know, 1970. Oh. Yeah. And <clears throat> this article got, doesn't mention Hickory, but it uh, talks about all the sightings that year. And um, but, yeah, unfortunately, because I ditched Facebook, I don't have any record and no way to, you know. And I I'm, know. That's I'm the not, only thing. That's I know. It, the, you're like the, you're like I, I hate you Facebook and you leave and then there's like some stuff like that like damn that's where that was I <laughs> fucking despise Facebook but the groups on there were awesome I know and this this was a group and um, it was like a Hickory group and um, yeah it was it, there was a couple really good threads on there about the ufos and about the old drive-ins and i actually got some information on, that i didn't know about the old movie theaters and stuff so yeah it's useful <laughs> right, right it's it's annoying as fuck but every now and then it i miss it you have to sneak in or, yeah. <laughs> or use somebody else <laughs> i got I, yeah i hey mom can i, yeah. can I get on your facebook that's, a minute that's probably <laughs> what I'm going to end up doing. <laughs> All right. Here's one. Uh, winter 1978, Argentina. Mendoza, Argentina. In the farm surrounding the city, a short, hairy humanoid with a human-like face was reportedly seen by numerous witnesses. It attacked livestock, goats, and fowl, and a hunt for it by the locals proved fruitless. Around the same time, a bizarre and very agile individual that wore a cape carried a silvery cane and had phosphorescent eyes, frightened several travelers near the city. A police patrol was astonished to see a tall, lanky individual with a cape and a brilliant yellow light on his chest. Mm. Execute a tremendous leap and fly over them, disappearing into the night. <laughs> And had a cape. And a light on his chest. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. 
Here's one, 1979, Mount Vernon, Virginia. Ooh. Residents of an afflu affluent residential area near George Washington's palatial estate were awakened as they have been for almost eight months by inhuman screams coming from a nearby grove of trees. Area residents home reported that everything from a Big Mac to yesterday's garbage that is left outside overnight disappears and that the screams frequently break up parties as well as a peaceful night's sleep. A platoon, and I, you can better believe there are a, pl a platoon, this is a rich area. <laughs> A, pl a platoon of Fairfax County police entered the wood while a United States Park Police helicopter with a powerful searchlight hovered overhead but found and hear heard nothing. Nearby residents said that as soon as the crowd packed and left, the screams began almost at once. Oh, wow. Here's a little fun one. And this is um, this is from the Apro Bulletin, nineteen seventy nine. But this is an article from the North Carolina investigator Wayne Laporte. Laporte. Okay. <clears throat> and it's called "What to Do If You See a UFO." If you see what may be a UFO, you should do the following. And keep in mind, this was seventy nine. We didn't have so. Yeah. <laughs> Number one, mentally note when you first and last saw the object. If you don't have a wristwatch, start counting 1,001, 1,002, etc. Each count takes one second to say. Number two, determine travel direction by noting some landmark it is heading for. Mm -hmm. Three, establish the angle of elevation. Zero is straight ahead. Halfway to overhead is 45 degrees. Overhead is 90 degrees. Four, point at the object with your finger. Compare object size with your finger width. Five, hold your hand out and time the object's passage between your outstretched thumb and little finger. Six, notice as much as you can about the object. Look for any unusual features, colors, marking, etc. Note how the craft flies. Are there any unusual odors in the air? Listen for a sound. If you are traveling in a car, roll down the windows and listen for any motor or engine sounds. <clears throat> Seven, note any unusual effects on radios, lights, clocks, CBs, and motors in your house or car. If any are affected, mentally note which ones are affected and in what sequence. Did they come back on by themselves or did they have to be restarted? Eight, look and listen for any animal reactions. Mm-hmm. Nine, if you have a camera, concentrate on getting good pictures. Make sure camera settings are correct. Take one photo, then drop to your knees and shoot another. <laughs> get up. Take four steps and again drop to your knees. Snap another one. Now get back on your feet and continue snapping the shutter once every three seconds. Try to get a portion of the landscape in at least one of your photos. If there are witnesses around, photograph them in between shots of UFO. Also, if at night, snap a picture of the moon before removing the film. Take the camera with the film still in it to a photo lab. Have an employee there witness removal of the film from the camera. Ten, as soon as possible, write down all the details that you can recall. Be sure to write down time, place, date, and duration of your sighting. Also, sketch what you saw. Mm 
11. If you see an object land, don't go near it. Some <laughs> UFOs have irradiated the soil at landing sites with microwave and nuclear radiation. Wait until the object leaves, then inspect the area. Look for swirled grass, burn spots, denuded areas, and landing leg depressions. If any landing traces are found, place rocks around marks and drive a stake into the ground next to the depressions. Photograph the site, especially the landing marks. Select the best mark and make a plaster casting. Collect soil samples from within and without the landing area. <laughs> That's great advice still, yeah. right? Yeah, the, great. Um, I've been paying more attention to uh, in all the accounts we dig through to the animal reactions. Yes. And um, the first time I noticed that, Stan Gordon had talked about it. And um, apparently someone wrote a whole book about it. Oh. And um, I'll look it up. Yes, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's another Rosales, June 1979, okay. 1 a.m., 29 Palms, California. Oh, I love that area. A man stationed at a local Marine base was driving through the Joshua Tree National Monument outside of town on a deserted stretch of road when his vehicle engine stalled. He then had a strong urge to walk out into the desert. He soon became disoriented and saw a flash of light up ahead. The light approached his position and the witness suddenly felt dizzy and fell in the sand. Before passing out, he saw a row of blinking lights approaching him. When he woke up, he saw the figure of a tall woman with long blonde hair and bright blue eyes with a clear ivory complexion looking down on him. She wore a tight-fitting silvery outfit with boots and a high collar that went up to her chin. She helped the witness up, and at, his, at this point, he noticed a large metallic disc on the ground nearby with a ramp leading to the ground. Two figures were coming down the ramp. These were humanoid, almost seven foot tall, wearing tight-fitting silvery outfits with dark boots and gloves. They also wore a large mirror polished helmet that covered their faces a third figure also came out this one was eight foot tall dressed like the others but somewhat robot like this last figure stood next to the object as if standing guard he wore a transparent helmet and two bright red pinpoint dots of lights could be seen where the eyes would have been the witness was then taken inside the object and giving a brief tour in a large room. He was shown what appeared to be military weaponry. Love it. <laughs> Weird shit in the desert. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's another one from the desert. No. Oh. March 1978, 2 a.m., Mesa, Arizona. James Minton was up late reading when he heard a loud humming sound coming from outside. 
going out to investigate, he was stunned to see a large hovering disc-shaped craft encased in a purple haze, hovering very close to the ground. As his fear became curiosity, he approached the object. Suddenly close to the object, a humanoid figure began to materialize. It became a man-like figure of an incredible appearance. It wore a brilliant greenish outfit, a wide belt, and a pair of tight-fitting boots. It stood staring at the witness. It appeared to have some type of emblem on its chest and what appeared to be luminous tentacle-like appendages emanating from the top of its head. It carried some type type of instrument in its hands. After performing several tasks around the object and completely ignoring the witness, the strange being disappeared into the purple haze that surrounded the object, seemingly blending into it. The object then rose up and disappeared from sight. Purple haze. I know. (laughs) I love the um, haze fog accounts. Uh after reading that great book Mm -hmm. okay I got another quick one Mm -hmm. Uh, south of Uniontown Pennsylvania winter 1978 a man driving to work on a sleepy morning saw a tall hairy creature sitting by the side of the road the creature jumped up and smashed the man's windshield with its fist yeah (laughs) The man, in response, reached for his pistol and fired two shots at the creature. It screamed and then ran into the woods. Police followed a trail of blood that led to an old mine shaft just across the West Virginia border. They didn't go in. Miners in the area know of such creatures and call them yo-yo creatures. They consider them harmless, but they do steal food. Hmm. Wow. Yo-yo creatures. Yeah. I'll have to look that up some more, too. What do you think that maybe the yo-yo name comes from their weird gait? You know, how they're supposed to walk weird? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And mine fast, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that book is, um, it's called Animal Reactions to UFOs. It's Linda Zimmerman. Okay. Who's written several books. And um, she uh, is at that area called the Bridgewater Triangle up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she investigated that pretty heavily. But yeah, we got to get that one. Nice. Oh, I got another quick one. Mm-hmm. Middlebrook, Virginia, March 78. Seven electric power employees driving across an open pasture on their way to repair a power line noticed a tall, hairy Bigfoot-type creature standing in the middle of the field. The creature suddenly dashed toward the edge, towards the edge of the nearby woods. It appeared to glide instead of run. Mm-hmm. The creature briefly stopped to look at the man, and they noticed that it carried something to its chest, resembling a red flashlight. Mm-hmm. It then disappeared into the woods, and that was from 
David Fideller, Saga UFO Report, August 78. Nice. <laughs> nice. I want to recommend something. Yeah. When we get to the or like when we when we get to the end of our reports, because you know, like I don't know if you have like a bunch more or. Oh, I got a because couple. I'm, yeah, let's do yeah, do some more. Okay. Um, this is November seventy eighth, Sabalos, Durango, Mexico, in a desolate area known as La Zona del Silencio where various strange phenomenon had been reported. A journalist, Luis Ramirez Reyes, and his driver had become totally lost in the desert while looking for a research laboratory. As they reached an intersection of an unpaved road, the journalist saw three figures suddenly appear out of nowhere. These seemed human enough and resembled local peasants. The driver, however, drove by the trio, apparently not able to see them. As they drove further along, the three figures suddenly appeared again. This time, the journalist ordered his driver to stop, and he did. After a brief conversation with the trio, the witness was given exact directions on how to find the laboratory. Apparently, during the entire encounter, the driver was never able to see the three figures. Hmm. <laughs> okay, I got a long one. Mm-hmm. But it's good. Okay. I'll try and get through it. Um, okay, this is March 17, 1978, Risley, Cheshire, England. A 39-year-old service engineer by the name of Ken Edwards was making the 15-mile journey home to Warrington Newtown Development following a union meeting in Greater Manchester. By all accounts, Edwards was a straight-laced, hard-working man who was not prone to wild flights of fancy or belief in the paranormal. Nevertheless, as the exhausted Edwards drove down an isolated stretch of road through the mostly derelict industrial district where the Risley Atomic Energy Complex was located, something utterly unbelievable snared his attention, something that would challenge his understanding of reality. Edwards claimed that he first spied what he thought was a man climbing, but he quickly realized that he was looking at a gargantuan humanoid figure lumbering down the steep embankment adjacent to the nuclear facility. Mm. The startled engineer immediately hit the brakes and his van slowed to a half near the curb of the road, or slowed to a halt, I think it was near the curb of the road, some 50 feet away from the hulking humanoid, which was now illuminated by his headlights. Edward stared in astonishment at this bipedal beast, which he would later dub the Silver Man, as it lurched down the hill with its arms outstretched, utilizing strange, stiff-legged legged movements, like someone who was born without knee joints. Mm-hmm. In fact, Edward's description and the sketch he made of this being makes it hard not to conjure images of some kind of enormous intergalactic Frankenstein's monster. 
Edwards also noted that this creature assumed an odd stooped posture as it scrambled down the hill, which seemed impossible for a human to emulate without toppling over. This would be confirmed by investigators who inspected the scene and were unable to imitate the thing's gait, forcing some to wonder if perhaps this silver man, like the Apollo astronauts leaping about on the moon, was not susceptible to the same laws of gravity gravity as the rest of us. At this point, the eccentric entity paused at the edge of the road and Edwards got his first good look at it under the glare of his high beams. The anxious engineer estimated that the figure was at least seven feet in height and was either clad in some sort of reflective silver fabric akin to a radiation suit or had a dull metallic epidermis. He also claimed that the figure's roundest face was black or that it was covered with some sort of mask with no discernible features except for a pair of glowing eyes. Furthermore, it had two thin arms that were not attached at its shoulders but stuck straight out of its chest like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Edwards tensed as the bizarre being trudged into the road directly in front of his car and turned to face him, staring into his eyes with its own self-illuminated orbs. The moment must have felt excruciatingly long as these two foreign species fixed their eyes on one another separated only by about 30 feet of asphalt and a windshield. And that was when things went from weird to horrifying. Without warning, two pencil-thin energy beams of white light shot from the humanoid's eyes directly into Edward's van. The engineer claimed that as soon as he was struck by these intense ocular beams, he was overcome by a dizzy sensation and lost all sense of time. Edwards also claimed that there was some kind of invisible force that apparently paralyzed him, which he compared to someone with two enormous hands pressing down from the top. (laughs) The pressure was tremendous. It seemed to paralyze me. I could only move my eyes. The rest of me was rigid. Stranger still, he claimed that he was overcome with unconventional thoughts rushing (laughs) through his head all at once but he only remembered one that kept looping over and over as it's in his brain. Is this something from outer space and what does it want with me? A moment later, he regained control of his muscles and realized that his fingers were throbbing and covered with what looked like sunburnt flesh. Mm. Even more disturbingly, he noticed that the circuitry of his pricey radio transceiver had completely burned out during the ordeal. It's worth noting that there are some exaggerated reports that erroneously claim that the device itself or even his vehicle actually exploded. This was not the case. When Edwards looked up, he saw that the entity had apparently lost interest in him and was heading straight for the 10-foot-high barbed wire top security fence that surrounded the fire station opposite the nuclear facility. Once it arrived at the fence, the silver man raised its fingerless hands upwards, lowered its arms, and then walked directly through the barrier like a cosmic phantasm. Mm -hmm. As soon as it melted through the fence, the creepy luminous eye creature clambered up the hill next to the fire station and disappeared into the woods beyond. 
Needless to say, Edwards was stunned by this entire episode and took a moment to compose himself and wonder what the hell just happened. (laughs) Edwards later claimed that he remained motionless on the roadside for a few minutes before he threw his vehicle into gear and sped home. But when he arrived at his house nearly an hour later, following a drive which should have taken no more than five minutes, Mm. the engineer knew that something was not quite right. Even so, he simply chalked it up to the trauma of this heroin event, making him lose track of time. It seems like a long time, I know, but I was petrified, and I do not want to go through that again. While that may be the case, the fact that Edwards had no direct memory of the time he lingered in his van forces one to wonder whether or not this might have been an example of the missing time phenomenon that is so often associated with alleged alien abduction cases. Perhaps Edwards didn't spend the entire span of missing time sitting behind the wheel, semi-comatose with shock. Maybe he was inside some kind of hyper-technological spacecraft undergoing a scandalously invasive alien examination. I I love when you can tell Albert's just having fun with these. (laughs) (laughs) If that were the case, Either Edwards had no recollection of the event, as most do not until the lost memories are unlocked through hypnosis, or he simply refused to speak about it. Although some researchers claim that he was haunted by thoughts of abduction, regardless of whether or not Edwards had any additional alien contact that evening. When he finally arrived home, his wife, Barbara, immediately knew that something was terribly wrong. Just before she could return back for being so late. Yeah, Barbara, I was going to be like, where have you been? <laughs> Barbara watched as her pale husband walked past her directly to the liquor cabinet to pour himself a shot of bourbon. The trembling Edwards threw back the whiskey, hoping that the liquid fire would calm his jittery nerves, then turned to his apprehensive wife and said, I've seen a silver man. Mm-hmm. Edwards fixed himself another drink and told his wife about his run-in with the bizarre, shimmering-eyed fiend. She claimed that she wasn't sure how to react to the story, but that she supported her husband. Later that night, Edwards was getting ready for bed when he abruptly stopped and began putting his clothes back on. He knew that he would have to set his fear of ridicule aside and report this abnormal event especially considered that it happened in such close proximity to an atomic reactor. Anxious and feeling the effects of the whiskey, Edward said to his wife, I think I'd better go to the police. Will you take me? Great. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara, of course, complied and drove her husband to the police station at Padgate, which was located less than two miles from their home. The police constables on duty including officers Roy Kirkpatrick and Rob Thompson, were understandably skeptical, but rapidly realized that Edwards was still scared. It was then that they began to take his admittedly unbelievable account very seriously. After some convincing, the uneasy Edwards agreed to accompany the officers back to the scene of their encounter, where they met up with a team of 20 baton-armed security guards. It bears mentioning that one of the men on the scene later stated that when the security team was told of Edward's strange sighting, none of the men so much as offered a smirk. 
Is this because they were stone cold professionals or could it be that they were familiar with this particular peculiar night visitor? And that was from uh, Janet and Colin Board, mm. their Modern Mysteries of Britain. And nice. I love the other stuff I've read by them. Yes. That's a good one. Yeah. And it shoots beams out of it out of its eyes. I like that. <laughs> it reminds me of like the it's so funny it was nineteen seventy eight because it reminds me of like seventies TV. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. <laughs> All right, what you got? Well, it's been a rough week, you know. I had a death, and um, that's why we didn't record. And well, so it's been weird. And you know, you're you kind of always look for something to kind of um, not not escape into, but like medicine, I guess, right? Yeah. So I found my medicine. It's an author named Grady Hendrix. And if you don't know him, (laughs) find him. Um, Grady Hendrix, uh, he wrote Paperbacks from Hell. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. He also writes novels. Um, I'm just going to, it takes, they take place in like our time period, like the late 80s, early 90s. So it's like so good. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because you can totally relate to all of it. It's it's really good. Um, but I'm just going to read this author's note from the book, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. So this is how it starts out. So because this, if I read his author's note, it'll kind of give you, it'll kind of give you a feel for it. And I really recommend. So I'm going to read this. Okay. Uh, author's note. A few years ago, I wrote a book called My Best Friend's Exorcism about two teenage girls in Charleston, South Carolina in 1988 at the height of the satanic panic. They become convinced that one of them is possessed by Satan and consequently things go poorly. The novel was written from a teenage point of view and so the parents seemed awful because that's how parents seem when you're a teenager. But there's another version of that story told from the parent's point of view about how helpless you feel when your kid is in danger. I wanted to write a story about those parents. And so the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires was born. It's not a sequel to My Best Friend's Exorcism, but it takes place in the same neighborhood a few years later where I grew up. When I was a kid, I didn't take my mom seriously. She was a housewife who was in a book club and she and her friends were always running errands and driving carpool and forcing us to follow rules that didn't make sense. They just seemed like a bunch of lightweights. Today, I realized how many things they were dealing with that I was totally unaware of. They took the hits so we could skate by obliviously Because that's the deal. As a parent, you endure pain so your children don't have to. This is also a book about vampires. They're that iconic American archetype of the rambling man wearing denim, wandering from town to town with no past and no ties. Think Jack Kerouac, think Shane, think Woody Guthrie, 
think Ted Bundy. Because vampires are the original serial killers, stripped of everything that makes us human. They have no friends, no family, no roots, no children. All they have is hunger. They eat and eat, but they're never full. With this book, I wanted to pit a man freed from all responsibilities but his appetites against women. Wait, I wanted to pit a man freed from all responsibilities but his appetites against women whose lives are shaped by their endless responsibilities. I wanted to pit Dracula against my mom. (laughs) (laughs) As you'll see, it's not a fair fight. It's like, it's so good. It's like smart, like he's smart and it's funny and it has like all the stuff from that time period and the characters are like, yeah, like you knew women like this, you knew people like this, like it's just, it's good stuff. Cool. And he has a whole bunch of novels, but yeah, but definitely a good writer. Definitely. It's like, he's smart. He's funny. And the characters, like you get sucked in. Yeah. So that is my recommendation. Grady Hendrix. I love when I get sucked into something new like that. And it's just so great. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. All right, we are back. Yep. <laughs> oh, and I was just looking at our stickers while you're reading. We have some great stickers, so if anybody wants some free stickers, don't be don't be shy. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm gonna get some more made soon. Um yeah. Yeah, just free stuff. <laughs> hit us up and we'll send them to you. Yep, definitely. All righty. All right, we'll wrap it up. Okay. All right. Good night. Good night.
Wow. Wow.